on a February morning 50 years ago, much of Southern California was sleeping. It was 6am and alarm clocks were sounding across the greater Los Angeles area. Millions of workers had just silenced their alarms. The only noise was of their feet slapping onto cold, tiled floors. But in less than one minute, before coffee was ground or bread was toasted, the full force of the earth was unleashed. The 1971 San Fernando earthquake had struck. 60 seconds of terror that would change California and the infrastructure sector forever. Hello and welcome to the Tunnelling Podcast. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Valentine. In this episode, we're looking at disaster resilience, key events, latest developments, and a working life spent improving infrastructure as we interview one of the biggest names in the field. The San Fernando earthquake of 9th of February 1971 caught experts completely off guard. Although California sits at the juncture of two major plates, the North American and the Pacific, and although many areas were known risks... The Sierra Madre Fault Zone specifically was not considered a threat. In fact, a 1980 study found that prior to 1971, it might not have caused a major earthquake for over 11,000 years. This meant that the 6.6 magnitude earthquake ruptured through residential areas, people's houses, It utterly devastated the local region, costing over $500 million to repair the damage. It injured up to 2,000 people and stole 65 lives. According to the US Geological Survey, the most severe damage was the collapse of freeway overpasses and the destruction of major hospital buildings. While older masonry buildings such as the Veterans Administration Hospital in San Fernando collapsed altogether. Even in areas where damage to buildings was not observed, severe ground fracturing and over 1,000 landslides added to the scenes of destruction. But things began to change. After the earthquake, the state of California enacted the Alquist Priolo Act to limit construction along faults that likely caused earthquakes able to rupture the ground surface in the last 11,000 years. The California Department of Transportation adopted seismic design practices using lessons learned from the earthquake. It created a post-earthquake investigation team to examine damage from future disasters and seismic monitoring intensified. The event galvanised a generation of engineers and improvements are still being made today that can be traced back to that one day in 1971. One recognisable figure from the tunnelling industry today was still in education at the time. He had earned his bachelor's degree in civil engineering from Cornell University in 1970 and was working on his master's at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. He can look back on a career spent in over and underground infrastructure. He's been fascinated by disaster resilience ever since the early years of his career. Well, my name is Tom O'Rourke, and I am the Thomas R. Briggs Professor Emeritus at at Cornell University. I've researched uh, most of my life on infrastructure issues, 
uh, have looked uh, very carefully at uh, the performance uh, initially of underground construction, went from there to looking at uh, the performance of pipelines and conduits and so forth uh, with respect to earthquakes. Tom began his career by looking very closely at earthquakes and was a member of eight reconnaissance missions to various locations around the world. Probably the two most significant investigations I was involved in was in 1988. I was actually invited by the Soviet Academy of Sciences to go to Armenia. This was during the heady end to the Cold War. Mikhail Gorbachev had just signed an agreement with Ronald Reagan in New York that had allowed expeditions such as this one into the Soviet Union for the first time. All this time they were gathering information about the demands on infrastructure, not just of earthquakes, but the problems that might result from a number of disasters. Another significant one occurred the year after, 1989, was the Loma Prieta earthquake. And uh, we had worked a lot with the fire chief there on the water supply of San Francisco. Especially with respect to fire following earthquakes. And, and during that event, they actually lost the entire auxiliary water supply system as well as a large portion of the portable water supply, not the portable, but the municipal water supply system. So they actually didn't have water for emergency purposes in the central business district. And they had to take the fireboat, uh, Phoenix, and actually dock it in the marina area and then bring hose tenders, which we were helpful in creating. These are special fire trucks that have about a mile of five inch or 130 millimeter diameter hosing. They're above ground pipelines and they're, they're constructed very rapidly. And they constructed those from the marina and they, they took them right into where the fire was uh, in the marina and was able to put the fire out before it spread. And of course, if it had it spread, it would have been a significant disaster. It was, it was problematic as it was, but it was a very close call. Initially, Tom's focus was on earthquakes, both the primary and secondary problems that result from them. But most recently, his focus has spread into other disasters. And one in particular that is more significant for tunnels than the average person might expect. So initially it was earthquakes, but most recently it's been hurricanes uh, to some extent. Uh, it's still earthquakes, of course. But uh, I was fortunate in that I was involved in a National Academies committee after Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina was a large Atlantic hurricane that caused over 1,800 deaths and $125 billion worth of damages. It hammered Florida and Louisiana in August 2005, but is most famous for the devastation it unleashed on New Orleans. Flood control systems broke, leaving the vast majority of the city underwater for weeks. The scale of the disaster astonished the world. And uh, I actually went to New Orleans about three to four times every year for about four years. We eventually made a major presentation to the Department of the Army and the Pentagon uh, with respect to our findings with respect to Hurricane Katrina. We, we actually, they couldn't actually turn the page in that particular project unless we completed our report to the, uh, the, the Secretary of Defense. But when talking about hurricanes affecting tunnels in the US, we need to move forward to New York in 2012. This was a major shock to all of us. In 2012, 
there was Hurricane Sandy, which became Superstorm Sandy. Essentially, the hurricane was swept uh, inland by another uh, low that was coming across the continental United States, and that created an enormous storm and uh, and run up. Uh, there was a rise in the water table of about 12 feet, which inundated Lower Manhattan. Uh, we never thought we would see Lower Manhattan underwater. It's quite significant. There was a tremendous impact on the infrastructure, with 23 separate tunnels flooded. And uh, to this day, we're still working on the rehabilitation of some of these tunnels. What, what happens is that, uh, that salt water gets entrained within the tunnel structure, and it's incredibly hard to get out. It's, it's impossible to get out on short-term notice that they have to return the system to operation. So basically the systems get returned, but they're not quite fully functional and they get less functional with time. Tom was involved with New York State Governor Cuomo working on L-Line tunnel rehabilitation. The L is a subway that crosses Manhattan and Brooklyn and was opened nearly a hundred years ago. He worked intensively with Lance Collins, the Dean of Engineering, and a team of engineers from Cornell and Columbia Universities. And we, uh, we helped, uh, I guess, in, in about four weeks of intense work, uh, completely uh, rehabilitated the, the design for that particular project so that would, the tunnels would be kept open. They were responsible for about 250,000 riders per day, and they were going to be closed for about 15 to 18 months, and that was politically untenable. So we, uh, we worked a solution to keep them open. But, but they're a good demonstration of the fact that, that the, the hurricane was in 2012. The repair uh, was in uh, 2020. So eight years after the event, you're still uh, having rehabilitation. It's like the bridges during an earthquake. In California, the, the Caltrans went through bridge repairs that lasted for about 20 years to get them up to uh, state with respect to uh, seismic response. Repair and maintenance is becoming a larger problem and expense for ageing infrastructure across the developed world. And there are new pressures that will only add to this. Of course, now we have fires. So, so <laughs> with, with climate change comes major hurricanes and storms. Uh, earthquakes are always with us. Uh, they, they become more impactful because people are literally uh, moving into areas that are earthquake prone. I mean, a great example of this is the Sea of Amar area in Turkey, right? Because since about 1970, the population in that area has, has almost tripled. And as a consequence, more and more people are exposed to the Northern Anatolia Fault and the kind of deformations that occur uh, and earthquakes that are generated uh, on that fault. In 1999, there was the Izmit earthquake, followed later that year by the Duja earthquake. Both on the Northern Anatolian Fault and had significant repercussions with respect to the infrastructure in Turkey and, and particularly with respect to uh, people dying. Uh, over 20,000 officially died. Uh, our estimates on the ground were a little bit higher than that. Back in the US, Tom says that the result of the growing awareness of these problems is that infrastructure resilience is now the tiebreaker in decision-making for a lot of large public works projects. Well, on the West Coast, uh, I was involved in a restoration and a rehabilitation of the water supply for San Francisco by the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. And, and that particular program, the decision to build, the decision to design, and, and this was 
approximately $3.8 billion worth of uh, renovation and new construction. The decisions were, were often driven, mostly, I would say, were driven by the seismic aspects. In New York City, the uh, major projects, uh, for example, the Gateway Project, which is the perhaps largest infrastructure project for the United States. It is to build new rail tunnels for Amtrak to take commuter traffic across the Hudson into New York City, and in so doing, take lots of cars off the road and currently the actual project is being driven by flooding concerns. So the, the, currently they have the North River, uh, River tunnels. There's two tunnels inbound and outbound which cross the Hudson River, but those have been inundated by Hurricane Sandy. And as a consequence, there are delays, uh, repairs, problems, and so forth. And so there's a single point of failure that's possible. You could uh, possibly lose the bridge or one or more of the tunnels in which case you'd have a tremendous transportation problem trying to get to and from New York City. And so they're building new tunnels for redundancy to have more than one point of failure so that essential services can be delivered to the communities that depend on them. The Gateway Programme is about a $13 billion project, so there is serious money being invested. And with the cost of investing in redundancy and repair, there is serious incentive to look after the infrastructure that's already in place. So the US is looking to the latest technology and taking lessons from the experience of other countries. There's new technologies that are being developed all the time. And, and the hope is that, uh, and, and even with private equity, the hope is that there can be some investments in the new technologies that reduce the cost. And, and, and in fact, that is actually happening on the, uh, Canarsie Tunnel, the L-Line Tunnel uh, in New York City, but we actually placed fiber optic sensors, which have been done for a long time in, in the United Kingdom, in London, say, for example, but uh, have never been taken up in the United States, at least not on a real project. And this project has them as part of the sensor system, so there is a whole new set of technologies coming in. Sensing being a major component of this, but of course there's artificial intelligence, what do you do with all this data? How do you actually find patterns and so forth? These are all emerging and, and they they're, have tremendous potential with respect to making the projects more economically palatable and therefore fixing more of infrastructure. For Tom, infrastructure is driven in large measure by the resilience issues related to natural hazards occurring worldwide. Clearly, uh, we have a problem with our infrastructure. For many years, it's been neglected. There are a lot of uh, locations that I can think of that, that need some significant repair. And, and the repair and replacement is not cheap. In fact, the cost is so high and the demand so great that it actually affects liquidity. In other words, there is not enough money out there to support all the infrastructure projects that need to be supported. At least not from the traditional means of raising capital, such as increasing national or local taxes or imposing tolls. So these sources of traditional funding are, are probably not adequate, are certainly not adequate to, to address all the infrastructure needs we have. And therefore, it's important to have a greater supply of money and, and an involvement in part of private equity. And, and that's really where a lot of infrastructure is right now, is working on creative ways of involving private financiers in infrastructure projects, at the same time preserving uh, for the public and for the public owners 
the accuracy and the reliability and the, uh, the appropriateness of, of, of the facility. Giving investors their 5% return year on year without compromising the infrastructure. Here again, we turn to emerging technologies as breaking this tie. Tom's current role at Cornell is to be the principal investigator at a laboratory they have there, the large-scale lifelines testing facility. Basically, it looks at underground lifeline, also known as critical underground infrastructure, response to large ground deformation. And how different materials and construction can influence the seismic performance of these pipelines. If any listeners want more information about this work, we've linked to the facility in our show notes. And, and we've been important uh, because we've done all the testing uh, for 10 new pipeline and conduit products that are resilient to the kinds of forces that are generated by natural hazards. So they, these, are, these are 10 systems that never existed before. And although the disaster itself can be very different, the effect on a pipe can be similar. And, and basically, if you look at an underground pipeline or a conduit, when you have an earthquake, you have ground failure, either associated with liquefaction or fault displacement or landsliding. With uh, hurricanes, you have flooding, and very often with flooding, you have undermining of large sections of pipeline, and, and therefore exposure by virtue of permanent ground deformation to, to difficulties in their operation. You would like to be able to depend upon these facilities after, after a natural hazard. And, and what we do is we realize that uh, ground deformation is, is one of the principal issues. And we actually can design pipeline systems to do a much better job of accommodating large ground deformation. So they're working on what they call the next generation of hazard resilient infrastructure. And basically what happens is when, when ground deformation is imposed upon a pipeline, you get two types of nonlinearities. You get a materials nonlinearity, which is the pipeline and the soil behaving nonlinear. That we're very good at that. We we actually can analyze those sorts of things. There are equations to explain this, and it's well understood. There's actually a geometric nonlinearity that the soil that ends up generating the greatest force on the pipeline is not the soil that it started out to be. It it gets cracked. It has rupture points. It develops voids. And so it actually transforms itself. And that's where we're not so good, is, is trying to evaluate where these geometric nonlinearities are taking us. So we recognize that the best way to design infrastructure for these conditions, the geometric nonlinearities, is to fight fire with fire. So we are building with the pipeline systems a new generation of shape shifters. They literally transform themselves in terms of shape to accommodate the ground deformations that are imposed upon them. Tom cites ductile iron joints that are able to accommodate axial deformation because they can either increase and extend or diminish and compress and also allow for a lot of rotation. There's obviously limits to that and that's what we do insofar as our studies. We, we evaluate what's going on and are able to characterize them. There's a whole generation of uh, polyvinyl chloride pipelines that, that actually, because they have low modulus, will stretch. And what's really amazing, which we discovered at Cornell, is they compress. The, the actual spigot end 
collapses and goes into the bell end of some of these joints. The joints obviously have to be restrained in tension uh, and they can do it. They fail eventually because of that incompatibility. But before then, they can stretch a lot, they can compress a lot, and they can rotate a lot. And, and that allows them to be shapeshifters. More information is available on their website. And Tom gets particularly excited about a type of cured-in-place pipe, which he wasn't actually able to fail during a rigorous test. All the work continues, but this is just one example of the current efforts to improve resilience. Fifty years have now passed since the San Fernando earthquake, the event that put lifeline earthquake engineering on the map. And on 9th of February, there was supposed to be a conference in San Francisco looking back on the half-century of disaster resilience in engineering. The event was to be called San Fernando Earthquake Conference, 50 Years of Lifeline Engineering. Uh, but clearly we couldn't do it because of the pandemic. So it had to be postponed to next year, 2022. So this is, this is about lifelines and, and all the things which were discovered during the 1971 San Fernando earthquake, all the damage to the water supply and the electric power, the sewer systems and the telecommunications and, uh, and the transportation facilities. Uh, those actually galvanized a whole group of engineers to, to look explicitly uh, at the performance of what are called these lifeline systems because, for example, the entire water supply of uh, Southern California comes across the San Andreas Fault. So in, in the event of a large earthquake, which will invariably involve the first, second or third segments of the San Andreas Fault, you'll rupture and damage all of these water supplies to the 11th largest economy on Earth. And our studies indicate that, that some of it will not be restored, and a good deal of it will not be restored until about one year to uh, 18 months afterwards. And, and that represents a significant economic problem that has to be resolved. About four years ago, a working group was developed that involves the Metropolitan Water District and Los Angeles Department of Water and Power and the Water Resources Commission in Sacramento, which is working collectively to solve the problem. Which Tom says is a first, but... This infrastructure really does uh, require regional players in, in order to make it work sometimes. And, uh, you know, simple game theory says that the, the water supply to Southern California is, is operated by three agencies, and there's six permutations of, of ways in which they could try to comply with that problem. Uh, and only one involves all three of them working together. And unless all three of them work together, it doesn't work. So you're down to a one-sixth percentage that it can work. And then there's problems there because uh, each one of them have constituencies, some of which want to participate and don't want to participate. Uh, in this case, they all decided to do it, but I can cite other cases where there is reluctance and, and that's part of infrastructure problems. The solution requires not only the technology, but also the sociology to solve the problem. The people have to agree, the agencies have to agree, and so that is going to be the topic of Tom's contribution to the planned 2022 conference. He's presenting a paper entitled agents of change for resilient infrastructure and he has a message for anyone involved in lifeline engineering or in anything else to do with infrastructure and disasters 
the simple, how can I put it, message, and there's many messages in the paper, but the simple message is, if you want to be an agent of change, change agencies. And, and, and so there is a tremendous opportunity, I see, in terms of public-private partnerships, that, that universities and operators of critical infrastructure can develop relationships which they would benefit from. So the, the agencies uh, that operate, for example, water, electric power, would benefit tremendously from the, the knowledge that universities or that certain companies might bring. And, but those companies and, and those universities would also benefit from the pragmatic issues that have to be faced day by day by these operators. We often think of infrastructure as requiring that, that binding and that close relationship between technologies and communities. And it does. But the first organization in a community that deals with the natural hazard are the operators of the specific resources that, that, that are necessary to recover from the earthquake. And so unless you bring the, the agencies into the solution and, and do it in a, in a reasonably structured way, you're really not dealing with the heart of the problem. The first responders are often these agencies together with the police and the fire department, and, and they need to be supported. They're generally the first front of the community response, and then comes the community response. Tunneling Podcast is a production of Reby Media. It is also the official podcast of the British Tunneling Society. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Valentine. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our executive producer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Cornell University. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, tunneling.reby.media, and on LinkedIn. <laughs>